This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. You guys excited to study God's Word together this morning? Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. A fitting way to respond to that big, awesome, Christ-centered musical worship we've just experienced is to dive into the Word and to know this Christ more intimately. The word philosophy has been around for a long time. It is from two different Greek words, one phileo, love, and sophia, wisdom. And so when you put them together, philosophy is love of wisdom. And deep inside of the human heart, um, we have sought to love wisdom and sought to explain this universe. And so from really the beginning of time, philosophers have been asking three big questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going? If you look at any philosopher throughout the centuries, it doesn't matter if we go back to Socrates or Voltaire or David Hume or Nietzsche or even coming to the 20th century and looking at guys like uh, Christopher Hitchens or Dawkins. We're all seeking to answer those questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going? The struggle, though, is when we're only coming at it from a human standpoint, our resolutions can only bring us so far. Our explanations can only bring us so far, but it doesn't stop us from asking more probing questions. And it's very interesting if you look throughout history, and today we can't do an historical expose on all major philosophers the world has ever known, but any. Even some of our best philosophers throughout human history, they would make a lot of postulations, a lot of hypotheses, but even at the end of the day, they're not completely 100% confident. And even in Nietzsche's case, who made a lot of different pronouncements about humanity and and our origins and our destinations, even Nietzsche, when grappling with the gravity of the things that he postulated, spent a large measure of the remaining years of his life basically insane because we just cannot wrap our minds around all the things that even we think we know about. When you come back to Colossians chapter 2 and continue thinking about a lot of the false teaching that was going on at Colossae and even thinking about ourselves still asking these three major questions today in the 21st century, we're left really at a place where we need to hear from a guy like Francis Schaeffer from the 20th century, who was one of the great Christian philosophers and theologians of our last 100 years. And Schaeffer said, man cannot begin with himself and arrive at ultimate reality. And so this morning, as we dive into this text in Colossians chapter 2, and thinking about the philosophies that were circulating around Colossae, And thinking about the philosophies that are even circulating around New England or the United States or around the world in the 21st century, we would do well to remember that if we're going to answer those three major questions, who am I, where did I come from, and where am I going, we must not start with ourself. We must start with God. And what Paul is going to take great pains to do 
in these paragraphs we're going to look at today is to make sure that we as Christians are coming back to our roots and coming back to the root of our faith, the root of our gospel, to know that this gospel we have received, this gospel we have believed, it is sufficient and it is enough to answer all three of those questions and is enough not only for this side of heaven, but also for the other side of eternity. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, here's what the apostle writes. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Such a rich passage this morning. Such a rich, deep theological passage. And we could mine the depths of this passage once a week for the next 20 weeks and still not exhaust it. But we've got to stay within the boundaries of 45 minutes or so this morning. And so we're going we're gonna to make sure that we faithfully study this passage, even knowing we can't exhaust it today. I want to encourage you to pick up your listening guide and follow along today in your notes as we make our way through this passage. And there's a central truth that I want you to know this morning. And here it is. God has not saved you for ambiguity, but instead for certainty. God has not saved you for ambiguity, but instead for certainty. When you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and you repent of your sins and you place faith in Jesus for the hope of salvation, the whole purpose of that saving, the whole purpose of that salvation is not so that you can make your way through the remainder years of your life wondering if this is enough, wondering if the gospel is sufficient, wondering if there is more that you should do to add to the equation, or wondering if someone else out there has a wiser, deeper, more enlightened view of the world. God did not save you so that you would go home in your sin today and wrestle wondering, am I or, or am I not? He has not saved you for ambiguity. He has saved you for certainty. That you would know without a shadow of a doubt that what you have believed and what you have given your life to is not only ultimate reality, but that it is sufficient, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. This was huge for the Colossians because there were people who were constantly circulating different theories and different hypotheses and different 
wisdom and different philosophies and, and telling the Colossians that what they had was not enough. And today, you and I face the same thing. There are philosophies, there are ideas, there are mindsets here in the West that, that very much tempt us to ask the question, are we really bigoted? Are we really closed-minded? Are we, is this gospel of Jesus that's 2,000 years old, is it really still enough today? So here's what I want to do for our message this morning. Here's how I want to break down this passage. I want to do it in the form of questions. I want to ask you three questions from this text today. And in answer, asking you these three questions from the text, I want to do that for two reasons. Number one, I want you to examine your heart. There are multiple places in the New Testament that tell us to examine our hearts. Examine where we are. Be sure that where you are spiritually is where God wants you to be spiritually. And so I want to ask you these questions today so that the Holy Spirit, through his truth, may probe and prick you in ways in your heart to ask yourself the question, where do I stand in the gospel today? But another reason I want to ask you these three questions this morning is because as we enter into the Easter season, I want us to reflect upon what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And I want the text today to come alive to us and that the text today through the power of the, God, the, the Holy Spirit that the scriptures themselves would incite us to exult in and glory in what Jesus has done on our behalf. And when we've done that and when we ponder that, how could we even think that something else would be sufficient to save us? Okay, question one. Question one that I would ask you today is this. Are you confident? Are you confident in the spiritual foundation undergirding you? Are you confident in the spiritual foundation undergirding you? When you look at verse six, he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Now, that word walk in him is a participle. It means it's a continuous action. In other words, what I have been talking about so many times over the last few weeks as we've been in this Colossians series is that the gospel that saves you also changes you. This morning, brothers and sisters, you need to know that we are not victims of a drive-by saving. We didn't just go through a drive-through spiritual window and received the gospel and left it back there at the street corner so that we could go on to deeper things and more enlightened things in this world. Instead, the gospel that saves you is also the gospel that changes you, and it's also the gospel that's going to continue to have its effect in your life. So Paul says, as you received Christ, as you received this gospel, continue to walk in it. Now, what exactly is it that we've received? Well, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, and I would really encourage you to turn back there in your Bibles, just a few pages, 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most exhaustive treatments of the resurrection and the gospel work of Jesus in the New Testament. It's also one of the longest chapters in the New Testament. Breathe easily, we're not going to read the whole thing. But we are going to read the first 11 verses. Because this same Apostle Paul who's writing to the church at Colossae also wrote to the church at Corinth. And here's what he said, picking up in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received 
in which you stand. Just stop there very quickly. Do you hear familiar language? This is very similar to what he's saying in Colossians chapter 2. As you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. He says here that this gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. What Paul tells the Colossians to continue walking in and what they received, he explains in more explicit detail in First Corinthians to the Corinthians of what it was they had received. And it was the gospel message, the gospel work of Jesus Christ. C.J. Mahaney, who is one of my favorite authors and preachers, says this, new things will always come along. Some will be good, some will be better. But according to God, only one thing will ever be best. And Paul tells us what that best thing is. It's the gospel of Jesus that's of first importance. And it's crucial this morning that we remember that. And he goes on to say here that in verse 7 that this gospel that we're walking in now, that he wants us to be rooted, built up, and established in Christ. Just very quickly, he, in these few words, that word rooted, we know what that word means. You look at a tree. You look at a, at a stalwart standing oak tree that stands 50 feet into the air. We marvel at it. We marvel at the fact that a big nor'easter can blow through this week, packing winds of 70 or 75 miles an hour. But those trees stand. Why? Not because they stand 50 or 60 feet into the air, but because their roots go deep down into the earth and those roots are keeping them erect here on earth. That's the picture, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just something that we believe in order to get into heaven, but the gospel comes into our lives and takes root into our lives. And as we go deeper in Christ and understanding what he has done and his work powerfully works through us, we have roots in our life so that no matter what storm or what we face philosophically or religiously here on earth, our faith is secure and our faith is established. That word rooted is pointing towards the past. It's pointing towards the past work of Jesus on our behalf. And when we received him through faith and repentance, then he uses the term built up. This is an architectural term. So this is pointing us towards buildings. You think about some of our great pieces of architecture, perhaps the Willis Tower in Chicago, or maybe the One World Observatory in New York City, and you see these massive structures that literally just go into the clouds of the air. But what we don't see is we don't see the stories upon stories of still beams that go in deep down into the earth 
that makes sure that those buildings stand not only for the next decade, but for the next century and longer. The foundation matters. And what Paul was telling the Colossians and what he would tell us today if he was standing here is that our foundations matter. Your spiritual foundation matters this morning so that we would be established in our faith just as we were taught. Now, this is huge. It's just as we were taught. This is not a faith of your own making. This isn't build your own adventure Jesus style. It's also not faith as in, as in the world's making. Because the world today is going to tell us a lot of things of what faith is or what faith isn't. But this is the one true gospel, first derived from Jesus, passed on to the apostles, and it's made its way to you and me today. But friends, there's always a temptation not to be established. There's always going to be a temptation, instead of being established and rooted and built up in your faith, to be moved from your faith. You are constantly going to be tempted to believe something new, to believe the voices around you, to believe culture. And the reality is a lot of it is going to sound good. More on that in just a moment. There's always going to be the temptation for you to even add upon what Christ has already done and accomplished on your behalf. Perhaps it's service, giving, legalism, denying yourself certain things, ministering to the homeless, your own personal works. There's always going to be a temptation to say, yes, Jesus was great, but it's also plus something else. Mahaney goes on to tell the story of a woman named Alice who bought a parrot on a Monday morning at the pet store. It didn't talk, so the next day she returned it to the store. The store owner said, well, he needs a ladder, so she bought a ladder, but another day passed and the parrot still didn't say a word. Well, how about a swing, the clerk suggested. So Alice bought a swing, and the next day a mirror, the next day a miniature plastic tree, the next day a shiny parrot toy. And on Sunday morning, Alice was standing outside the pet store when it opened, she had the parrot cage in her hand and tears in her eyes because her parrot was dead. Perplexed, the store owner asked, well, did it ever say a word? Well, yes, right before he died, he looked at me and asked, don't they sell any parrot food at that store? There are many good causes and many good activities that can occupy your time and your attention. There are even many great things that God even commands us to do. But just as no amount of parrot cage amenities can make up for a lack of parrot food, nothing can replace the gospel in your life as a Christian. If the gospel isn't the spiritual foundation undergirding your soul, your soul will become like Alice's pet, starving in a crowded cage. This is why the New Testament writers take such pains to constantly call us to stay true to the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ and that that gospel would be the only hope, spiritually speaking, that we could place any confidence in for our life here on earth or for our life in eternity. It's why when he wrote to the Galatians, the Galatian people were being so tempted to believe not only in the gospel for salvation, but also the gospel plus the, the physical act of circumcision. And at the very beginning of Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, 
he rebukes them and warns them. And he says this, starting in verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But listen to this. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So brothers and sisters, this morning, if you were hoping in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ to save you, to raise you, and to produce eternal life in you for all of eternity, then you do not have certainty undergirding your soul. And that first question that I just want to ask you is, are you confident this morning? Are you confident in the spiritual foundation undergirding you? Anything other than the gospel will always lead you to ambiguity, uncertainty, doubt, and that would even lead to hopelessness. And that sets us up for a second probing question to ask yourself this morning. Second question is this, are you vigilant in heeding spiritual warnings around you? Are you vigilant in heeding spiritual warnings around you? In verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Here's the reality this morning for you. False teaching isn't new. So when you hear certain things on TV or you read certain things on the internet or scrolling through social media, you need to know that this, this isn't new. These ideologies aren't new. Questioning the gospel isn't a new fad in the 21st century. The New Testament is actually replete with warnings to resist false teaching and to stay true to the unadulterated gospel of Jesus. Let me just give you a, a taste here. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus himself says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In Mark chapter 7, he's rebuking the Pharisees. These were the religious spiritual leaders of their day. But they had adulterated the hope of the gospel, the, the message of God, and instead gone and created all of these traditions of men, and they were putting more of an emphasis on their philosophies and their traditions and their commandments that actually distorted what God said. And Jesus rebukes them and says this, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Jesus wasn't exactly consumed with winning friends and influencing people, especially among the religious elite of his day. In Acts chapter 20, this same apostle Paul was in a place called Ephesus, the same Ephesus where he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. But during his missionary journey there, he calls the elders together of Ephesus and he says this in a warning, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You go to the end of Colossians chapter 4 in verse 14. We learn about a man named Demas 
He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So this was a man in the church, a leader in the church. But if you fast forward over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he writes to Timothy that Demas has deserted him and gone away and pursued the things of the world. And so we actually see these warnings taking effect in real people's lives. But here's the picture, because we could spend an hour just looking at all the references in the New Testament warning against false teaching. It's not new. It's been around since the earliest days of the church. And I want you to notice through all those passages that the danger of false teaching is the subtlety of the danger. Jesus said that they would come in sheep's clothing. In other words, it will appear good. It will appear safe. In Ephesus, he told the Ephesian elders that these wolves were going to rise from among you. I mean, these weren't going to be people coming in wearing these funny looking robes or packing heat that would be the danger to you. They're going to be people right from your own midst who are going to confuse and draw away. Even when you look at Colossians, if you go back to last week's message and you look at verse four, he says, I'm saying this so that no one would delude you with plausible arguments. In other words, it's reasoned. It sounds rational. It sounds good. You go down to verse uh, 23. I don't want to give away next week's message, but in verse 23, he says, these have an indeed an appearance of wisdom. That's the danger, brothers and sisters, of false teaching. You see, things that just sound ludicrous, that's not really a danger to us. If people tell you today that you need to stock your shelves with squirrels and chipmunks so that you can sacrifice them in your backyard... In order to be pleasing to God, see, you're already snickering. You know that just sounds ludicrous. That doesn't add up. But when people start twisting and taking the true gospel of Jesus and twisting it just enough so that it sounds right, but it's just enough wrong, it's like putting one drop of cyanide in a gallon jug of water and saying, well, I'd still have a glass. Just one drop taints the entire thing. It's the subtlety of the false teachers that presents the most danger. And it's why we must heed the warnings and be vigilant in heeding the spiritual warnings from the scriptures. Going back to our text, Paul says that these false philosophies are from human tradition and that they were also according to the elemental spirits or the elementary spirits. John MacArthur says to abandon biblical truth for empty philosophy is like returning to kindergarten after earning a doctorate. He goes on to say human religion is not advanced, erudite, higher, transcendent, and lofty in its profundity. Rather, it is banal, elemental, and rudimentary. It does not convey any new and profound truths and fatally at its core is an effort to achieve salvation by works. So this morning, I would ask, like, in, in thinking about, are you being vigilant in heeding the spiritual warnings from the text? Let's ask another question from that. So how can, how can you be vigilant? What does that look like? How does it, what does it look like to be vigilant in heeding the biblical warnings to resist succumbing to ideas and philosophies that would turn you away from the true gospel that you received? Well, the key here is in the text. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the world and not according 
to Christ. There's the contrast. There's the contrast. The false teachers are not according to the gospel of Christ. The Secret Service in the United States of America is not only tasked with protecting the president and his family. We know that. But you also realize that the Secret Service is tasked with protecting United States currency. And in protecting United States currency from counterfeit bills and having counterfeit bills running throughout our economic system, an average Secret Service agent tasked in that department, they do not spend the majority of their time studying and examining counterfeit currency. Instead, what they do, they are so trained, their eyes are so trained to know the consistency, the faithfulness, and the credibility, and the authenticity of a real bill, that whenever they see a fraud, they can see it from a mile away, not because they're so familiar with the fraud, but because they're so familiar and an expert in the real, authentic bill. That's the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, you see, you don't have to study false religions. You don't have to study cults. You don't have to study the false systems and wisdom of the world in order to be vigilant in heeding the spiritual warnings. Instead, what Paul is calling us back to is that we know the gospel so deeply and we know the truth so profoundly and so well that when we hear a fraud and when we hear false teaching, we can detect it from a mile away because we know the real thing according to Christ so well. How do we do that? Guys, this is why we read the word. This is why we read the word personally. It's why we read the word corporately. It's why we should be reading good theology books. You can say, well, I'm not a reader. Learn to be one. For the sake of your soul, learn to be a good reader. Read good theology. Read good Christian living books. Listen to good sermons. Hear from good mentors. Walk together in community. I shared last week at the end of our message that a Christian not committed to a local church walking in community together is like a fish dropped into a shark tank. Because we were never meant to be alone. We were meant to be in a pack. We were meant to be in community. And the Christian community is actually another means that keeps us within the guardrails and the boundaries of the true gospel. You go off by yourself, you are asking to be consumed by the enemy. Know the word. Read good theology. Walk together in community. So these first two questions that we see Number one, are you confident in the spiritual foundation undergirding you? Two, are you vigilant in heeding spiritual warnings around you? Here's the last one. Are you astonished by Jesus' gospel work inside you? Are you astonished? As we enter into the Easter season, it's one of my prayers for us as a faith family, it's one of my prayers for myself, is that God would simply revive inside of us just an astonishment and an amazement over what Jesus has done on our behalf. I pray that the cross of Jesus would never be rudimentary. 
I pray that the gospel of Christ and what he has done, that we would never be so familiar that we would just drive on and say that I've gone through that. Now let's go to deeper things because you will never find anything deeper than the gospel of Christ. You will never find anything more enlightening and more illuminating than what Jesus did on our behalf. And I really believe that when you look at verses 9 through 15, you get a taste of that. Again, whenever he says that these false teachers are not according to Christ and he reiterates the, uh, the person of Jesus, he says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, I could go and extrapolate here a lot of different teachings on who Jesus is and how he was both God and man. He was fully God and fully man. But I would point you back to the previous sermons, even sermon two in this series where we focused on the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. And so I'm not going to spend more time talking about the exclusivity and the deity of Jesus here. Go take you back to what we've already learned. But he reiterates that. To say that all of our hope is grounded in who Jesus is, but then also what Jesus has done. Now, here's what I want to do. I just want to fly through here because what he does in verses 10 through 15 is he reminds the Colossians of what God has accomplished on their behalf. What Jesus did for us, not what we did, not what the Colossians did. Not the works that we mustered up, but all of the work in Jesus, through Jesus. And you're going to see this language throughout here. In other words, he wants us to see that our spiritual identity is, is magnetized, glued to Jesus. That everything God did to Jesus, through Jesus, was also for the sake of us. And so whatever Jesus has accomplished it's also on our record. You're going to see through here words like in him, with him. This is pointing theologically. This is what theologians, theologians call our union with Christ. Look at this. Look at the passive language. Verse 10, you have been filled in him. Verse 11, you were circumcised in him. Verse 12, having been buried with him. You were also raised with him, he says. Verse 13, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Friends, here's the picture this morning. This gospel that is the foundation of our spiritual souls, this gospel is not of our working. It is of the work of God. And you even see that. In verse 12, we were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of who? God. Friends, this is why we can be confident today and not ambiguous in our faith. Because you see, as long as your faith is predicated upon what you are doing or just what you are mustering up, or what you are accomplishing, we will be just like the great philosophers of the past who postulate and hypothesize about a lot of things. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we're just not really sure. Because on any given day, we're shifting. But if your faith is grounded on the Christian gospel of Jesus Christ, who has done all of this working on your behalf, 
we can be certain and not ambiguous in our faith. So here's what I want to do very quickly. I want to go through here and I want us to see five, five workings of God on our behalf in Jesus, through Jesus. Number one, he has made you complete. He has made you complete. Verse 10 says that you have been filled in him. You see, false teachers, empty philosophies will say, go and fill your minds with knowledge. Go and pursue something greater, something more uh, just uh, enlightening and intellectual. You can be filled by other things. But Paul says that you have been filled in him. Peter echoes this in chapter 1, verse 3 of 2 Peter. He says that his divine power, Christ, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How many things? Is it just most things? No. Some things? No. All things that pertain to life and godliness, His divine power has granted to us through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and goodness. And so today we can rejoice in the fact that Jesus, through the power of the gospel, has made you complete. You don't have to look to another person to complete you. We don't look to a spouse to complete us. We don't look to education to complete us. We don't look to vocation to fulfill us and ultimately make us who we are. Because through the gospel, the Bible says you have been filled. You have been completed through the gospel work of Jesus Christ. Number two, he has made you new, he says. He has made you new. In verse 11, he talks about circumcision. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about the physical act of circumcision, and everyone says that's a sigh of relief. Perhaps that's something you can ask your parents or your roommate later what that means. They can explain it to you. He says, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Friends, this is huge. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a sign. There was a sign of the covenant. There was a sign that meant that you were a part of the nation, the covenant community of Israel. And it was literally the external act of circumcision on the male's organ. But even then, in the Old Testament, God made sure that they knew that it wasn't simply an external rite. It wasn't simply a ceremonial act that made them right with God. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16 the Bible tells us, circumcise therefore not the foreskin of our bodies, but the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. And so the ultimate circumcision that God is ultimately caring about is what's going on in the heart. And so when Paul says that in Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, it's very clear that this isn't an external act, this isn't a bodily act. Instead, the circumcision of Christ by putting off the body of flesh. This is the picture, is that in our sinful flesh, in our sinful ways, that's the picture, the flesh is our, sin, our sinful part of us, is that Jesus Christ is coming inside of us and doing a spiritual open heart surgery on us and giving us a new nature that now cares about the things of God. Have you been a Christian, whether it's been a month or whether it's been 40 years, and you know in your heart and life that today there are spiritual realities that you care about 
that a month ago, 10 years ago, 40 years ago, you couldn't care less about. Is that your life today? If you're in Christ, it should be. It's because he's made you new. It's because he circumcised your heart. And he has removed that flesh driving you. We still battle the flesh, but it doesn't drive us anymore. His spirit does. And so that's good news today. Not only has he made us complete, he has also made us new. Thirdly, he has made you alive. He has made you alive. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. This is a truth today that I'm not sure that we think enough about as Christians. Over and over again in the Bible, we are told that we were dead. Wait a minute but I've been quite alive. I have a lot of vitality. Chris, I run five miles every other day. I wasn't dead. Oh, you may be very alive, physically speaking, but the Bible says that spiritually speaking, apart from Christ, that we are dead, meaning that there is no spiritual stimuli that has any effect on our hearts. We are closed off. We are dead to the things of God. But here's the good news, is that when the gospel of Jesus Christ rings in your ears through some sort of supernatural work of God that I can't explain, he literally invades your heart and resuscitates you and breathes life into your lifeless soul. This is why you can't explain it. This is why you say, man, one day I hated the things of God and the next day all of a sudden I cared. And this is a work of God on your behalf. And it says that he made us alive together with him, together with Christ. This is why we celebrate the resurrection. He made you alive. Fourth, he has made you forgiven. He said not only are we made alive together with him, but having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. At the expense of even bringing up anything political this morning, the United States national debt sits at somewhere around $20 trillion. In case you don't know how much that is, that's the number 20 with a lot of zeros after it. And even if you collectively put all the incomes of our entire lives together in this room, it would not even come close to that number. Imagine for a moment that that wasn't the national debt, but that was your debt. Imagine for a moment that that was your student loan balance. Some of you are thinking, man, I thought it was pretty close already. Imagine paying that back. But then imagining the joy that would happen when you go to the mailbox and you got a letter from the federal government saying your debt has been paid in full. And you no longer owe that debt. It's the picture for us. You see, for those who want to work their way to God, for those who want to believe in a human philosophy that somehow that as long as we just believe what we believe wholeheartedly will get us to God, it's a failure to understand the fact that we are spiritually dead and we need to be made alive. And it's not just that we are spiritually dead and we need to be made alive. It's the fact that we have a colossal debt, not against a bank, 
not against a university, but against the creator of the universe. It's what the great late R.C. Sproul called as cosmic treason. We are indebted to our maker. We are indebted to our God. And rather than looking at us saying, come up with some really creative, intellectual ways to work your way back to me. I'm going to send my son. And I'm going to kill him on your behalf and raise him from the dead and take your astronomical debt and cancel it out. And then I'm going to nail it to the tree and make a spectacle out of that debt. That's what Christ has done on your behalf. So let me ask you this question. Why would you even be tempted to believe that you could add something more to that? He has made you forgiven. Lastly, he has made you safe. He has made you safe. Verse 15 is so good. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's that word again. Again, we don't know all the depths of the Colossian heresy, but we do know this as we make our way through Colossians chapter 2, and you'll hear more about this next week. There was definitely a spiritual component of this, a mystical component of it. And being fascinated by angel worship or being fascinated by, by the spiritual beings and the unseen world. And it, it were, was things that possibly, that for many of the Colossian people, they were frightened of. For those of us even in this world today, living in the 21st century, you start thinking about Satan. Or you start thinking about the unseen spiritual world and you start thinking about fallen angels or demons or demonic powers there are some of us who have a fascination with that and that fascination actually leads us to great fear there are those in this room who perhaps you live alone or perhaps you live with others but you turn your light out at night and you're in the black dark and you're lying in your room staring at the ceiling and you're just afraid it's just a part of being a sinner on earth. We're flawed people and we're broken and the fear is real. And you start thinking about that unseen world and what may be floating out there, right? We've been there. That can stoke fears inside of us. But what verse 15 reminds us is that we have nothing to fear. Because all of this unseen world and these elemental spirits or these fallen angels or these demonic powers or even Satan himself, Paul says that he disarmed them. It's like that moment in the classic Rudolph cartoon, right? Where, where the little dentist removes all the bumble's teeth and he just walks around like that, right? He's impotent. His weapons are gone. He poses no no threat to you anymore. That's the picture. Yes, Satan exists. Yes, his demons exist. And yes, you may even fight them on earth. And yes, they may pose a temptation to you. But they will never pose a mortal threat to you. You have nothing to fear because Jesus disarmed them. Jesus declared them impotent, spiritually speaking, for eternity. And not only did he disarm them, I love this, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is a picture of the Roman government. When Rome would conquer a land, when Rome would win a battle, 
what they would do in order to declare that battle is they would go back and they would have a victory parade. And they would parade through the streets and they would carry their banners and they would march with their soldiers and they would have the, the captives, the captive army in shackles marching down the street. And it wasn't just that Rome wanted to win the battle, they wanted to publicly shame those whom they defeated. That's the picture. Jesus, not only on the cross and resurrection, not only did he disarm and declare the spiritual powers impotent, but then he mocked them and embarrassed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This morning, brother and sister, hear this from the scriptures. You have nothing to fear if you are in Jesus. There is nothing and no one who can take what you have away from you. You are forever safe in your Father's arms because of what He has done on your behalf. This morning, I want you to be introspective. I want you to examine your heart. I want you to ask yourself these questions this morning. Are you confident in the spiritual foundations undergirding you? Are you confident in the gospel? Are you ambiguous because you're resting in yourself? Then turn to Jesus. Because verse 12 reminds us that all of this is through faith in the powerful working of God. And so today could be the day when you stop striving. Today could be the day when you stop trying to work. Today could be the day that you could stop doubting. Today could be the day that you could stop having ambiguity and begin having certainty in your spiritual life. And all because you are now rooted and you are established in your gospel foundation. Believer, are you vigilant in your fight in heeding the spiritual warnings around you? Are you so confident in the real thing that it would take a mighty act to move you? You're confident. Maybe today you would just have a renewed passion to read the Bible more deeply and fervently to read more theology, to, to attach yourself to more brothers and sisters so that you can read together and like iron sharpening iron, you can make each other stronger for the fight in order to be vigilant on earth and be faithful to the end. And then lastly, just to remind us, even as we stand in a moment to sing, to just be renewed and being astonished over what Jesus has done on our behalf. Friends, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Be amazed today. Marvel. Be astonished at the work of Christ in you and through you. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that you have raised us. We thank you that all of this is not of our own doing, but because of your great work through your son. And so today we look with spirit eyes, faithful eyes, not at what we commit to the process, not what we offer and contribute, but what Jesus himself has already done. How could we improve upon what Jesus has already done? Father, today cause us to be introspective. Cause us to be vigilant. And Father, well up inside of us an overall sense of amazement 
And may that produce inside of us gratitude, thanksgiving, and praise. Jesus, thank you for bringing us to the Father. Amen.